Well, go ahead and grab your Bible. Open up to Matthew chapter 6, which is the same passage that Vanessa just read for us. That same section is where we're going to be focusing our attention this morning as, again, we are in our our third week talking about prayer, and I've titled this sermon, The Preeminent Prayer. Preeminent meaning above all, that there, there is nothing else in which we should focus on, and that will all make sense in just a moment. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody just a, a few weeks ago, somebody that I've, I've known basically my whole life, uh, but I haven't seen them in a long time, and uh, the conversation started uh, very normal, uh, very normal introductions and very normal pleasantries of how are you, how's it going, and, and uh, this then ballooned into or really turned quickly into a conversation uh, really about this person's occupation and their work and their life and all the things that they've been doing. And this, is, this was really mostly uh, unprodded by me. It was just a full disclosure of what was happening in their life. And, and I didn't really prompt any of these questions. Uh, questions didn't really prompt any of their responses. And so they, they kind of just unloaded all these things that they were doing in their life. And this was all happening through this several-minute conversation without asking me anything about myself or about what was going on in my life or, or those kinds of things. It was obvious what was important to this person, and this was evident because of the way that the conversation just defaulted into talking about what was most important to them, which was themselves, right? Now, I would assume you've had conversations like this. You've ran into people like this. But have you thought about why? Like, why does this happen when you have conversations with people like this? Or, or maybe you're thinking right now, I've never had a conversation like that with anybody, which might mean you might be that guy, right? You might be the one that just unloads all of life and you never actually engage anybody else in conversation. You might be this person I'm describing. Just to let you know, it was none of you in this room that I had this conversation with, okay? Um, how often are our prayers structured the same way? Where we, we come to God with the normal pleasantries, the normal Christian terminologies and words in which we use to appeal to God, and then we jump from the pleasantries right into all of the things in which we need and which are about us and which center around what's going on in our life. We then part ways with God, thinking that the conversation that we had with Him went really well, and we are glad that He listened to us as we kind of think or envision that He's just up in heaven, just kind of nodding along, as you would with somebody else that you really are not really engaged with in conversation of, "Uh uh-huh, right, mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And you're glad that God heard you, that He listened to you, and you go on about your life thinking everything went well. This was a good time of prayer with God. He listened to me. He heard me. But this is not the instruction that we have from Scripture about how to pray. This is not what we have from Jesus, as we have here in Matthew chapter 6. And I want us to look at a very familiar passage, a very familiar section out of Matthew chapter 6, titled, The Lord's Prayer. You know this by heart, you know this by memory. Maybe you have memorized it in the King James Version, and you have some these and thous in there. But you have an idea of what this prayer is, and we could probably all recite it. But I want us to read this in verses 9 through 13, and then I want us to kind of walk through at least the first half of this prayer. 
Look at verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there is obvious, obviously here two parts of this prayer. The first half of this prayer is centered around God's glory in verses 9 and 10. The second half of this prayer is really about our lowly existence in verses 11 through 13. And so what we are going to do, we're going to split this into two sermons, 9 and 10 this morning, as we focus in on God's glory in our praying. Now, in the beginning of verse 9, we have really an introduction that is here. And Jesus gives us a structure for an introduction in our praying. There's something really interesting that takes place here in this model prayer that Jesus gives us. In the verses before this, as what Vanessa had read for us this morning, Jesus talks about not praying like the hypocrites or not like the Gentiles. Don't pray like them. Don't sound like them. Don't talk like them. Not being like those that are heard praying out loud, and they love praying out loud, and and they do that because they want to be heard. They want others to think highly of their praying. There are also those that use excessive wording because they think that they can manipulate God in some way or some sort of divine manipulation tactic where if they say the right words or enough words that God will then look upon them with pleasure and, and satisfaction in how they prayed. Jesus speaks about a personal prayer life in those verses. But then notice what happens in verse 9. He's talked about praying alone, away, not being in front of people, not out loud in front of people, not, not drawing attention to yourself. But then he says this in verse 9, our Father in heaven. This introduction, these just a few words here in the ESV, this first word, our, is the first part of the structure of this introduction. This is an interesting word, interesting choice of word, because this seems to be an indication of a corporate aspect into prayer. A corporate aspect. Whether we are in a corporate setting like this, or we are in an individual setting like Jesus describes in verses 5 through 8, whether it be you off alone, Jesus starts with this word, our. Our. Now, if you look at the rest of the structure of this prayer, it follows the same form. This is, again, unusual because of how he had talked about prayer in verses 5 through 8. Now, I think this means that even if you are in a prayer closet somewhere, you're isolated, you're, you're alone, this is how you should pray. But also, if you're sitting in a gathering like this, where we just had a time of kind of corporate praying in the same direction together, this is how we pray. And maybe you are the one leading the prayer. This is the mindset in which we should have. Now, is prayer something personal between you and God? Yes, of course. Jesus describes that, doesn't he? He says, yes, it is, but it is much more than just you and God, according to Jesus. It is connecting yourself to the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is directing us away from individualism with this word. Away from the individual mindset in which we are so drawn to and default into, just like this person I had a conversation, conversation with, where they just defaulted right into everything about them. 
But with this one little word, our, it moves the mind, moves the heart into an individual, away from individualism into a corporate idea. There is no first-person singular pronouns in this prayer at all. You will not find them. And why is that? I believe it's for our good, my good, your good, of why they are not there. Because, verses 5 through 8, what is the mindset of those people that pray in these ways? It is about them. And so the word that is used here, it is a corporate pronoun that is used, and this fights against the selfishness that we so easily default into and the tendencies in which we have. And so the structure of our prayers will be radically different if we start with an us or a we or an our instead of an I or a my or a me. It radically changes the way that you're going to pray. This means that your prayers will not be centered on you or on me, but on us and on Him, of what He is doing. This is why, this is why we should be careful with what we say, whether that be privately or publicly with how we pray. So, starting with a plural pronoun like this actually helps us individually, personally, fight against the selfishness that dominates us so badly so pervasive in our life and our thoughts, which is just another reason why the local church is a really healthy thing, an important thing to our spiritual health. We need each other, and even in our prayers, we need each other. Look at the next part of this introduction, this next word. He says, our Father, our Father. Now, there's many titles that are given to God in the Bible. You, you probably know a lot of them, but this is the most intimate title given to God, Father, as our minds engage with God in prayer, we, we need to approach Him in this intimate way, understanding that He is near to us just like a father is near to his children, just like a father would be to a small child and a crowd of people navigating them through that crowd, staying close to them, giving direction and help to them. This is how near God is. And this closeness that God has with us is because of His great love that He has for His children. Now with that, we need to ask the question, who are His children? Well, as maybe you might have heard, and possibly you have even said yourself, well, we're all God's children. This is fundamentally not true according to Scripture. We are all creations of the Creator, and because of that, we all experience at times benevolence from the Creator, which seems to be and feels like at times a fatherly thing that's happening, but this is not what is described as Him being our Father in Scripture. The Scriptures actually indicate to us that God is properly Father, to only those who know Him through the Son. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. And there's many texts that I could direct you to. Let me just give you two examples this morning. John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John writes these words, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, which would mean they weren't, now they are, 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
God is the one that has brought them in. God has adopted them in. They were not, now they are. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. It's through Jesus Christ in which you are put into the family of God. If you have not went through Christ, you are not in the family. And so we should not say things like, well, we're all children of God. No, not according to the Bible. Not according to Jesus. This is not how we should think. So it's those that are actually in relationship with Jesus that have a relationship with the Father. And those that have been adopted into the family of God by the saving work of Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, are rightful sons and daughters of the Father. This makes you special. But you are special because you belong to Him. Not because you did something. Not because you accomplished something. Not because you're so wonderful. Not because you're so attractive or that you have so, so much to offer. No. It is because of Him We belong to Him, and that's what makes us valuable. That's what makes us special. That's what makes us His. He has a special love. He has a special care. He has a special purpose for His children. This is why we're special. Look at the third thing, the third aspect of this introduction, these next two words, in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Jesus instructs us to think of who we are speaking to. Yes, Father, this is true. He is our Father. But then he moves on into uh, beyond this intimate level, this personal level, this corporate level, into the location of where he resides. He is in heaven. Now, this means that God is not some kind of force in the universe, some impersonal force that's moving and and doing things, that this is how we think of Him. No, he, He is the God over all things. He reigns over all things. This is who He is. And so the location, heaven, is giving that perspective. He is above all. Now, we use a word, a big theological word, He is transcendent. He is, beyond, he is above and beyond all that we are. He is above and beyond anything, anyone. He is holier. He is higher than all. But as Jesus first states in this introduction, He is also near to us. Our Father in heaven. So He is above all. He is higher than all. He is beyond all. But He is also close to His children. We should start our praying with something that sounds a lot like this. But it doesn't have to be this exactly. And maybe you grew up in a tradition where this was the exact prayer in which you prayed. Maybe you still do this, that you think, well, these are the exact words I must pray. It's the Lord's Prayer, mind you. Well, this would not be the case because we do have other prayers by Jesus himself that do not follow this exact form, this exact function. And so we we know that this is not the exact thing we must pray, but the elements of prayer are here. The structure of prayer is here. So our Father in heaven is a structure in which we use, but not the exact words that we need to pray. Hopefully that makes sense to you. 
Now, after this introduction, Jesus then gets into request of a prayer here. There's six in total. There's three that we're going to look at this morning, as in the first section that we have, and there's three that we will look at next week. The first three that we're going to be looking at today starts with this, God's name hallowed. God's name hallowed. Maybe you haven't read this before as really a request, but this is really what it is into the wording that is here in original language. Now, you've read this verse, you've heard this verse, you've probably prayed this verse multiple times, but do you understand what the word hallowed means? And I think probably because of our context and, and our, our experiences, we, we think of hallowed as like something else other than what this actually is, and we think of like sleepy hollow or something like that. In Tennessee, you say hallow all the time, and you mean, you know, a, a valley. Um, they're weird. Um, that, so we... We, we think in different terms, and so what is the right term for this? Well, the Greek that is used here, it's translated really kind of three different ways that we have in the New Testament, and this word hallow is only, it only gets translated twice as hallowed from the Greek. Most of the time, it's translated in some sort of form of holy or sanctifying in some way, and so the verb hallow means to make holy or to consider as holy. Now, we need to understand that we cannot make God something, right? Like, we, we don't have that kind of ability, that kind of power to make Him something. All we are doing here, of what Jesus is telling us to do here in prayer, is to acknowledge what He is. Acknowledge that He is holy, and that He has far more value, far more worth than anything else. And so whenever He says... In verse 9, hallowed be your name, he is directing us to this idea of acknowledging God being who he is. He is above and beyond us, but he is also near us. He is holy. So when Jesus says to pray that God's name be hallowed, he is requesting that God would move in such a way that his holiness and glory would be revealed, it'd be shown. It is asking God to cause His name to be honored, honored as what it should be in the hearts of humanity. Now, this is the only one of the requests that we have, all six of them, that addresses a very specific response of the heart, very specific response of the heart. Now, the others that are here, they do not name a very specific response of the heart, but they do acknowledge that the heart is involved in the process. But hallowing God's name is a specific response of the heart. Now let's consider the pieces that we've been given so far in just these few words of this prayer. If we are to ask God that His name would be hallowed in the hearts of people, who are the first people that this should be true of? Us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We should be the first ones that this is true, that we really are honoring Him and showing that He is glorious in our personal life. But as Jesus points out to us, we corporately as a church should be hallowing His name. So it is you personally, and it is us together. The church, the church, this church, has been given a very specific stewardship of the name of God. We are to hallow His name. 
us together as what we're trying to do even this evening with VBS. We are to hallow His name, glorify His name. And if the church gains a bad reputation, that is reflectant upon His name. This is true of you personally. This is true of us corporately. So this has many implications for us as individuals, as, as a local church. We, we have a lot of implications that this could mean. We should be petitioning God to hallow His name in all that we are attempting to do, everything that we are trying to do on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or a Monday or a, a Thursday. It, it doesn't matter. All of what we are trying to do should move to this point that God's name be hallowed. Our concern should be to see God's name revered, esteemed, valued, honored, admired, loved, cherished, whatever word you want to throw in there to describe the the importance of who He is. We do things or not do things, but are those things aiming at this target of hallowing God's name? Is this the target for you personally? Is this your personal target that your life is going to aim at hallowing God's name in all things? Is this the target, dad, that you have set for your family, the direction for your family? Is is this the target that you're aiming at, that God's name would be hallowed? Wife, is this the target that you are aiming at in your relationship to your husband? that His name would be hallowed. Last week, I started the sermon with a fairly lengthy description about a restaurant. And the longer I went on about the condition of the restaurant, I hope that the appeal of the restaurant faded. However hungry that you thought you were when it started, hopefully that was extinguished by the end of it, and you were like, ooh, that's disgusting. Hallowing God's name, aiming at, running toward, pushing toward God's name, being seen and valued and, 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 and lifted high and cherished above all is like a hunger that you should have. A hunger that should be in you, Christian. A hunger to see His glory revealed in your life, but also in the lives of others around you. If we do not have a hunger for God, then of course we will pray very selfish and self-centered prayers. Of course you will. Why? Because you have a hunger for something else. You have a hunger for another person or a hunger for yourself. If we do not have a hunger for God, then of course we will not be walking in obedience So the question simply is this, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for spiritually? Do you want God's name to be hallowed above all others? And hallowing God's name means that you value Him above all things. He is essentially your treasure. Jesus gives that picture to us, right? Man finds a treasure in a field, he he covers it back up, sells everything he has. Why? So he can buy the field. This is how we should think of God. He is more valuable than anything 
we could ever possess. And because you view Him this way, your prayers will be driven to see God work in others in such a way that they too would want to hallow His name. This is really the basis for missions and for evangelism. Which also then means, if we have no hunger for God, there will be no hunger for souls to be saved. In your life, personally, in our life, corporately, do we have a hunger to see souls saved? And if not, does that not reflect the hunger in which we have or not have for God? I think so. Look at the second request that Jesus tells us to pray for in this verse. Look at verse 10. Sorry, the next verse, verse 10. He says, your kingdom come. So the next thing that Jesus tells us to pray for is that God's kingdom would be coming. Now the first words of Jesus' public ministry, maybe you know them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, wait a second. Um, I thought Jesus said here to pray that the kingdom would come. So does he mean that it didn't come? What does this mean? If he says that it's at hand, but he wants us to pray that it's coming, so which is it? it? Has it arrived? Is it coming? And the answer is yes. Yes to both of those. It, it has come. It has come in Jesus. Jesus, the King of kings. He has arrived. He has come. And he brought salvation to sinners. And he did this by giving his perfect life in place of imperfect Sinners like us dying a death that was deserved by all of humanity in order to save humanity. The kingdom being at hand means great joy. There's great joy to to be thought of and to be promoted and to be taught. There's great joy in the fact that the kingdom has arrived. But don't forget that first word that is there by Jesus, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means that if you do not repent, then you have no part of that kingdom, and that you will be under great judgment, because you haven't surrendered to the king, Jesus. If someone will not put their trust in Jesus' sacrifice for the sins, then then what what does that mean for them? Well, there is no removal of sin for them. They remain in their sins, and they remain under condemnation. They remain under God's threat of judgment. And thinking about this as well, if we consider what Jesus says to Pilate as he's on trial, he tells Pilate at his trial that his kingdom is not of this world, to which Pilate is, again, confused and doesn't really understand what what he's meaning by these things. But what Jesus means is that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, or maybe you would even think of it as the invisible kingdom of God in, in terms of human eyes, but this does not mean that Jesus' kingdom is a fictitious one, that it's made up. It's very real. The king has come. This is why they mocked him, because they thought physical, but Jesus meant spiritual. But here, in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us instruction to pray, verse 10, your kingdom come. So the king has come, but the king wants us to pray that the kingdom would come to this earth just as it is, as it says in verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Well, what, what does this mean? This means that people would follow the King of Kings and swear their allegiance to Him in their spiritual lives and their physical lives, which is the same thing that is happening with the angels right now in heaven. All of them are doing this perfectly. This is what He wants us to pray. He wants us to pray that there's a change of heart that will show up in our real, tangible lives. It starts with God's name being hallowed. Now, some have taken this to mean that the kingdom can be brought into this world through moral reform or social justices. Others have taught that the kingdom can, can come through political action or elections or cultural influences in some way. But the problem with these views is that Jesus said His kingdom is not of this world, which means these things cannot accomplish His kingdom. These things cannot change the hearts of people, which means they do not have forgiveness of sins, which means they are not sons and daughters of the king, and they do not want the king, and they do not want the kingdom. So these things in and of themselves do nothing for the kingdom. No change of heart means there's no change of status. God's kingdom comes when there's a change of heart. Let his name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. How do people follow after the king? They have to be changed by the king. They have to be different than they were before. And so this request serves the first request of hallowing God's name. When hearts are changed and eyes are freshly opened to embrace Jesus as Savior, this is when we witness true revival in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our nations. It's a change of hearts. I often heard growing up in, in church, um, a, a Baptist church, I often heard this promotion of of wanting revival to break out. Revival coming into our communities and into our churches. And, and so the question that I have is, so what has prevented revival from coming or the kingdom of God coming in this way? That, that people have such a desire to follow after Him that they would want to hallow His name. And it would look like they are obeying just like an angel in heaven is obeying. What has prevented this? Well, let's think of this question. To whom does revival come? To whom does revival come? And I think there's, there's at least three things here. I think revival comes to obedient people, people that know God's Word, or at least in the knowledge that they have, they obey it, they follow it, they do it to the best of their ability. Second of all, I think revival comes to humble people. People that are acting in humility. Now, obedience and humility need to go together. They can go together, but they are, they are not exactly the same thing. If you are obedient, you can also not be humble. But I think if you are humble, it will lead to obedience. It should lead to obedience. Then a third thing, revival comes to praying people. And I think we have this example through the Scriptures where people are obedient to God, they're humble before God, and they're praying in their humility and in their obedience. Revival breaks out across 
people, God's people, because they act in this way. Revivalist, author, Leonard Ravenhill puts it this way. He says, we must not pray for revival as a cure for empty seats in the churches. We must not pray for a heaven-sent deluge merely to extend our particular body of believers. Prayer for revival must be pure. Listen to how he defines this. Our first request concerning revival must be that God be glorified. Afterwards, not before, will come our request for sinners to be saved in a believing that the heavens will be rent. God's conditions have been met. If we want God's kingdom to come, are we meeting His conditions? Are we walking in obedience? Are we walking in humility? Are we spending time in prayer? Is our focus upon the glory of God in all things? Or do we want God to glorify us in all things? This leads us to the third aspect, the third request of this prayer in verse 10, where Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, to understand this part of the prayer, we must recognize that there are two different ways Scripture uses this terminology of God's will. First, there is the will of God's decree or the revealed will of God, meaning that He has told us what He expects of us as His creatures. Think of the Ten Commandments, right? That's a simple example. We have a simply defined law of what we need to do. He has decreed this. The second way of, that Scripture defines God's will is God's sovereign will or His hidden will, the secret will of God, as some have referred to it. God's sovereign will is evident, I think, on almost every page of the Scripture. Starting in Genesis 1, where we see God sovereignly over all things in creation and all things come into being by His sovereignty and His power. And everything is for His purpose. Even to, as we read through the Old Testament, even the overthrow of nations we see, the using of evil nations, as we're seeing in Isaiah's book, or even to the execution of Jesus Christ, as the disciples define in the book of Acts. He is over all things and does whatever He pleases according to His will. And again, Ephesians chapter 1 is helpful here in verse 11, where Paul writes, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It is His will, His desire, that we don't always know or understand, and thank God we don't have to in order to, to be serving Him. He works all of these things together to the counsel of His will. This connects easily to Romans 8.28. We know all things work together to those who are called according to His purpose. So in which sense is Jesus using this term of God's will being done? Of praying that God's will will be accomplished? Well, it cannot be the sovereign sense because this is already taking place. This is already being fulfilled that God's sovereign will be done. So this would make this request Jesus is telling us to pray a mute request. It would have no value, no meaning here. Jesus is 
clearly referring to God's decreed will. He's asking first that the Father's name would be hallowed. This is the first thing he tells us to request, which leads to then requesting um, the, the will of God to be done in our hearts, in every single person's hearts. Where they obey, where they glorify God like He is being obeyed and glorified in heaven, even now. This is what this means. This model that Jesus is giving us in, prayer, in praying is, is a surrendering of our assumed lordship, our assumed personal sovereignty, It is praying that it is not your will being accomplished, but it is His. Your will be done. Are those not the same words Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. Man was created to do God's will. This is why you exist. This is why you're here today. You are to do His will. This is why you have breath today. Not that God was created to do your will. And often we pray as though God was created for us, not that we were created for Him. And prayer that follows this structure are prayers that are are kingdom-focused and led by humility. They are prayers that recognize who God is and His authority, His character, and in His proximity to us, how close He is to us. And praying this way keeps our eyes off of so-called success, and it keeps us focused on His glory. Our greatest burden in prayer should be that God gets the glory or that His name is hallowed. This is the greatest thing that we could pray. The greatest thing that we could have others pray is that God would be glorified. It is the Lord that we need It's not more money or more people or more leaders or more programs, but God Himself. How are we praying? John Piper puts it like this. One of the reasons prayer aborts in its significance for people's lives is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. They want to ring up the butler to bring another cushion to the den when it's designed for war. Prayer is designed for ministry, calling in firepower and air cover, not designed to make your boat start this afternoon. How are we praying? Are we praying more of a prayer like this? My servant in heaven, make my name great. Let my kingdom expand and my wishes be granted as if heaven were on earth. Are we content with our selfish prayers? How's that working out for you? How are those selfish prayers going? Where are you at spiritually with those? Is it driving you to cynicism because God has given you a blatant, loud no? 
where you are left in a place of just anger and bitterness and now you are prayerless? One of the worst things God can give you is what you've been asking for selfishly. One of the worst things He can give you. I think that's a special kind of judgment. Do we want the giver or do we want the gifts? What do you want? Do you want His name to be hallowed? Do you want His kingdom to come in your life? Do you want His will to be done in your life? Or do you just want the gifts that He can give you? Let's spend some time in prayer this morning, in reflection. Let me, again, remind you of these three things that we have into the, the form of the request that we have, that we would hallow His name and pray for others to do the same thing that we would strive after the kingdom in obedience, in humility, and in prayer. And third, that we would submit our will to His. Let this be the structure of your prayer in just these few moments. If you want to come and pray in the front, I, I invite you to do that. If you want to grab somebody else to, to come with you and pray and maybe kneel where you're at and pray, we invite you to do that as well. Maybe it's the, the posture in which you've been assuming is a reflection of your spiritual condition. It's not a one-for-one, one, but just as our obedience maybe is lacking, maybe it's because we have a lack of hunger for God. If you've been doing the same thing in your prayer, you've been praying the same way, you've been expecting the same things, you've been thinking the same things about God, and you keep getting disappointed in all of those things, possibly you're doing it wrong. I would ask you, spend just a few moments in true reflection, true prayer, and then I'll pray for us.